Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And I'm David Parker. And we are hope you are all doing well out there in the land of listeninghood. There's been a lot of listening, hopefully, at this point. Uh, well, <laughs> in the realm of hope, yes, <laughs> as we learned last time. <laughs> That's where we love in the realm of So hope. in the realm of Arwen, yeah, there's been lots of <laughs> there's listening. There's lots of hope, yeah. In the realm of Elrond, no, no one's been listening. No, Elrond's world is a, is a doubting world. You know world. what? That's our first... Uh, inside reference that's our first inside joke for really true fiction <laughs> okay so if you're listening to this right now you just got the first inside joke from really true fiction boom branded, <laughs> branded. that's an rtf insider right there <laughs> we're we gonna got, we're gonna have trivia questions about this someday <laughs> we got the we got the scoop for you what was the first self-reference that really true fiction sorry i just gotta put my glasses further up my nose what was the first ever self-reference that really true fiction did <laughs> okay. <laughs> On that note, let's if talk about If you know about... the answer, you will are win. <laughs> All right, you're killing me, man. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. Anyway, yes, <clears throat> we are here to discuss uh Return of the King and the trilogy off with a bang, considered by many people to be their favorite Lord of the Rings movie. Uh well, it's the one that cleaned up at the Oscars. It tied um Ben-Hur and Titanic for most Oscars won all time with 11. It was almost as if they were waiting for this movie to come along before they gave any of the Lord of the Rings that many because, I mean, I think we all agreed those were all great movies, but yeah, for I some think, reason this one got all the awards for all of them. I think almost is the wrong word. <laughs> this is certainly That's exactly what happened. cleaned up. Yeah, yeah, no, it did. It, did. it was a trilogy yeah. win that all for, went to Return of the King. For one of the greatest stories, arguably, in uh, the world. Well, it deserved 11 Oscars I learned then. something recently. Second most sold book in the world is Lord of the Rings. After what book? Sold or given away? <laughs> well, we all know we're referencing. You're, if you're going to make me guess, you're going to put me in the missionary position. <laughs> oh, oh, he's on fire tonight, folks. <laughs> That's a gonorrhea. <laughs> Okay, I'm not even going to say what it is. I think you're all going to know. That's fine. La Bibliotech. <laughs> okay, sorry, guys. So what I wanted Don't to ask... Don't apologize! <laughs> what I wanted to ask Luke was... So all of the Lord of the Rings books are split into three separate smaller books, right? When you were reading the Lord of the Rings... Weren't they split into two smaller books? Yeah, I think... I, sorry, two. They were split into two smaller books. When you were reading... Did you, in any sense, or get the way, get the sense that there were six books, or were you so kind of indoctrinated by that point into the idea of the trilogy that you thought it was three books? Well, I couldn't think it was anything but three because they were all packaged that way. Right. So even yeah. though it was six books, there were two books in 
Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, and Return of the King, and they were all in one physical book. Because <laughs> I always thought it was it was interesting that Tolkien wrote it as six or whatever, right? But we've all read it as three, and he and he labeled it as three. It's probably not doesn't mean anything, but I've always thought everything meant something to Tolkien. Mm-hmm. What does that thing mean? Uh, well, we are recording this just before the Tolkien movie comes out. So if we start talking about Tolkien, about things that we have no idea about that become popular culture knowledge from the movie, this is our escape route out of it because yeah. I don't know. Because neither of us know. <laughs> We're just speculating here. And again, because this podcast, the goal of it is not to uh, rehash plots, authors, uh, literary or film criticism per se uh we are totally fine with being way wrong about everything (laughs) this is literally two guys talking about stories they love like that's what this is all about and stories that have meaningful tidbits in them that i think aren't well articulated in the culture yeah like it's always cool to look at a story from a different perspective than you ever thought about it before there's that great Eliot poem where he says you know the end of all my exploring will be to return to my beginnings and know it for the first time and i think maybe that's part of what we're trying to do yeah that comment that poem that reminds me of how I feel, how I felt when I first came back to Canada after spending significant time away from it. Because I lived in South Korea for three and a half years, and the first time I came back after being gone for thirteen months, I rediscovered what I liked about my own country, and I learned what my own country was in a way just from being gone from it. <laughs> and then, like in a sense, that's what the hobbits learn when they come back to Hobbiton, right? Mm, yes. they've, they've gone out into the world. To, I mean, we're, we're skipping. <laughs> we're going to start at the end. end of the movie. But why not? Let's go backwards. It could be fun. I was thinking, though... Well, if you go forwards or backwards in Return of the King, the climax is still about in the middle. (laughs) Ooh, movie reference. (laughs) All right, they destroyed the ring. Now the movie's probably going to end in like 45 minutes. Maybe maybe a long time from now. A lot of other things are going to happen first. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, I agree. There's a cool... Because this is something I've read a couple of essays about and thought about a lot myself, is the idea of returning to the Shire. Right? And a lot of people feel like you can't return. You can't go back. When they come back, they don't, they're don't. they so different. They've been changed by the world. From the very beginning, we've been talking about how Frodo and Sam, they needed to know evil. And that the problem with the Shire is that they didn't really understand what the dangers in the world were. But now they know. Like Mary, Pippin, they've seen even in some ways worse things than Sam and Frodo have seen. Like, they've been in wars. They've watched the orcs come in waves. Whereas they come back, and the Shire just couldn't even handle, in the books, a few goblins. But in when they come back in the movies, the Shire's pretty much fine. Yeah, that's true. Shire's protected unknowingly. Yeah. Right? Yeah, in the, in the movie, which I liked that change as well. It's like one of the things that... Peter Jackson does really well is he decided to change the story to fit the narrative he was telling in the movies versus necessarily what Tolkien was trying to say in the books. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Spoilers again, (laughs) as we are going to be discussing all sorts of points of Return of the King. And when you were talking about how there's like different books that Tolkien wrote for this, I was reminded of the fact that one of the major plot points of return of the king movie is the battle with shelob the spider if memory serves me correct does that not happen at the end of the two towers 
in the books. Yeah, it's getting the yeah they have the timelines a little bit, but I think it's just another narrative way of doing it, like splitting it into the three as opposed to more the, the different fluidity of the six. Yeah, I mean it's more exciting to be in Return of the King because it sets up more intrigue for what Gollum is gonna do to our hobbits. But I remember the first what my <laughs> even though I love Return of the King, <clears throat> my first memory of it that I can recall is <laughs> what the shit <laughs> that spider's in two towers not return of the king what <laughs> yeah. the hell are you doing well the other if we're going with those one of the things that i found really weird was the army of the dead right amazing concept great storytelling they look like big bottles of flowing mountain dew <laughs> like, <laughs> it's it's the only criticism i have of the of the cgi well how would you have made the ghosts look probably more like the uh the skeletons in uh, pirates of the caribbean if i was gonna do it <laughs> but yeah, well, <laughs> that, that was a trilogy that Lord of the Rings just couldn't quite be. <laughs> no, that's fair that's enough. Really, that was, Pirates of the Caribbean is really the trilogy where Orlando bloomed, I would have to say. <laughs> like I said, folks, he's on fire. I'm right just now. pulling your Lego last. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. All right. Okay, so. Into the meat. <laughs> so when we're looking at Return of the King, it's the, the beginning, right? Not expecting to be there when you walk into the theater to watch that for the first time. The scene with Smeagol. And do you remember his friend's name? A little trivia? Ooh, I don't, but do you? Uh, I believe it's Deagle. Oh, De- that's right. Smeagol and Deagle. Yeah, yes. Smeagol and Deagle, right? Yeah. And they're and out fishing they're in the boat. They're just hanging out. They're, 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 they're hobbits. They, yeah, and they seem like kind of weird. Like They seem a little weirder than hobbits are now. Maybe they're like, because well, it was at least 500 years before. The hobbits we know so maybe they weren't quite as evolved yet <laughs> well yeah they're kind of like more of a, a hunter-gatherer society than like uh they don't even have like a village civilization at this point it doesn't seem well they at least have a boat <laughs> yeah and they're fishing right yeah. and they're doing this thing and this is not from the uh any of the books at all this is completely a creation of the movie but i love it because it gives you even more feeling towards Gollum. Right, like this is where he started. This is how yeah. he became what he is. What we're seeing is the birth of Gollum. Exactly, which I think is like it's highlighted in a different way in the movie, and I love it because we're seeing the birth of addiction. We're yeah, we're seeing him with his friend, and they find the well. Deagle finds the ring. And Gollum wants it, and it's the first sign of that flash of Gollum in Smeagol's eyes and in his demeanor and in his presentation and like you say the birth of an addict right out of the gate his addiction which he doesn't even know he has until that temptation is right in front of him again with that ring the very first thing he does in his addiction is kill his best friend like murder the closest person could you be more on the nose than that (laughs) it's all it's a little ham-fisted except it's done so well it isn't ham-fisted you're like wow the ring's powerful that's what you feel from that scene the ring is powerful Definitely, but abstracting from it, definitely seeing how Smeagol, because he kills his friend, friendships die. Like at a more abstract level, I liked how it made me think how, well, man, friendships die if you pursue the wrong things. Smeagol and Deagol being great friends for presumably a very long time before this. Ring, again, I love the ring representing basically anything bad that you need it to represent to make a point. <laughs> yeah, we've we've expanded the ring from its traditional interpretation, but I think anyone listening could agree 
it's fitting these other archetypes. Yeah, if you just ring as bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Bad things for life. <laughs> the ring as um, a bad thing uh, or the wrong thing. Right away, Smeagol is destroying his friend, literally, but also metaphorically destroying his friendship because he pursues the wrong thing. And his addiction to, quote-unquote, the wrong thing, not to cast aspersions on, not to moralize drugs themselves or addictions themselves, but maybe a step below that is meditating on on thinking of, oh man, the things that I'm pursuing, who who am I seeing less and less of? because of what I'm currently on the path towards or working on. And that was a that was a really powerful idea that struck me. It's like, man, if you feel like you have Sam's in your life yeah. that you're not seeing very regularly or your uh sell your your life stories are not as in- intertwined, if that occurs to you, why is that happening? And what are potentially some things that you might be doing or me or anyone that is our ring in this scenario where Smeagol is uh, literally cutting ties with Deagol because of his desire for this thing. Man, that is a really profound point if you think about it because how many times in life do we pursue things we think matter at the rejection of the things that actually are going to matter to us? And this is a common theme in stories everywhere, right? Where people are the pursuit of power or the pursuit of romance or whatever it is they one of my favorite books is uh charles dickens great expectations and in great expectations the most devastating scene is when joe who's the father of pip like he he raised him loving blacksmith not a very bright guy but just so full of love and pip rejects him for his ambition to go and, and live in the big city and live his life right and it's such a devastating scene but it's it's the same thing in this beginning scene in Lord of the Rings. It's like, look what it did to him. It destroyed the only people he loved. And you could tell the guilt drove him mad. That's why he wanders the hills and ends up... This is not a, a strength. Sauron would not be dwelling in some pit. The thing is that Smeagol doesn't like Gollum. There's still <laughs> a conflict there. There's not a conflict for Sauron, but there's a conflict for Smeagol and Gollum. Well, even though I said I wouldn't, as a literary aside, that makes Gollum much more interesting than Sauron because a character who is wholly something without having some conflicting other things in them is not that interesting. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) But back on the topic of Gollum, when I thought of that, and yeah, that's a good connection to Dickens. I hadn't thought about that because I haven't read Great Expectations in a long time. Maybe that'll be a future episode. Yeah, that could be a great episode. That would be a great one. Because then I'm like, okay, so if Smeagol is destroying friendships by pursuing the ring, what is the opposite of that? The opposite of that is, at least in Lord of the Rings, is destroying the ring. What relationships or what what is being gained in the process of destroying the bad thing that is maybe the opposite of what is being lost by trying to pursue the bad thing, right? And if we think back to fellowship, especially fellowship of the ring, even though this is like this unbelievably difficult undertaking, which let's say breaking addiction certainly would be, or trying to delay gratification or avoid something that feels good now, won't be good later. 
if we look at it, let's say from Frodo's perspective, who does that put him into contact with? It puts him into contact with people like Aragorn and with Legolas and with Gimli and with Gandalf, even though he already knew Gandalf, it puts him at a deeper level of relationship with Gandalf and uh, Arwen and Elrond who are, and Galadriel. And these are all people or characters that have some really deep strengths and vitalities in their own rights which are people that he would never have met were he not to pursue the opposite of what Gollum pursues, at least at the beginning. What's interesting, again, in the story is how the Gollum parts start to slip even into him, and he's internally fighting with all that as well, right? Yeah. But if Gollum represents destroying friendships through pursuing a bad thing people like frodo and sam and mary and pippin and all of our characters like look at the kind of people that they actually find to surround themselves with because they're pursuing the opposite of that like the, <laughs> look at the difference between having to live with Gollum versus having to live with aragorn right <clears throat> the yeah. two differences of that based on what you're pursuing the kind of the, the quality of person you might find yourself coming across based on which path you take of those kind of things yeah so so how do you see that playing out let's say in our lives right in regular people's lives well i not because these people are in heroic situations right we're watching we're watching world-bending epics right but like let's let's boil this down to a real human level where it's just you know living your day-to-day life going to work well, <laughs> I certainly would not disagree with the person who says I'm a little bit of a pretentious fuck, but I'm not that pretentious, so I'm not going to talk about what I think other people should do. But I, what I will talk about is what I think works for me, which is pursuing elements of human culture that have appeared to have done other people really well and have also has some evidence of having done me really well as too, which are I love music. Uh, I pursue music. I like to learn about it. I like to listen to people who are way better at it than me, which is basically everyone who plays music, but I still learn, right? I love to read. Um, these are like <laughs> all the treasures, right, in in the library, uh, literally and metaphorically and digitally now, <laughs> more increasingly yeah, so, yeah, right? no, true. I love to, maybe this will sound a little bit, cheesy but i like to just go hang out at parties and talk to people probably also maybe not a surprise like non-fiction fiction movies tv shows studying narrative studying how stories work studying reading about myth and how what stories are still still being told thousands of years later and why are they being told i i think this is one of the reasons we love what we're doing here what is the meaning of these stories what is the practical application stories aren't just for entertainment i feel like that's a, a great deception that people can believe like you're wasting your time reading fiction i know lots of people who say why do you read fiction why do you read fantasy why do you read sci-fi right it's because narrative is so powerful to be able to express a truth and the great thing about narrative is it undercuts reason it gets past whatever you have that you built up to defend yourself emotionally on something and it gets right. This is why we cry in movies. This is why when you finish a really good book, you almost feel like you've been hit by a train, right? Cause you were in a world and you just came out of it. Well, I will not disagree with that though. I, 
I doth protest on the undercutting of reason. <laughs> oh, right, yes. But I think I, I think yeah. it, not the reasons not what I'm What I gleaned from your context was more like post hoc rationalizations. Yeah. Of our own yeah, exactly. defense mechanisms. Well, and then stopping ourselves from actually feeling or thinking about that thing, that thought or emotion that we've been predisposed to reject. Like one of my favorite books is My Name is Asher Lev. And it's about an Orthodox Jew who was raised in New York. Uh, and then he becomes an artist. And like he does this big painting of Jesus up on, up on the cross. But Jesus is his mother in the painting. And his, his very religious Jewish parents come in to his art exhibit. And they're horrified, right? It's like blasphemy. And for me, being raised really religious too, it's like you come to realize that this the narratives that you held so dear, some of them could were taught you to reject everything else but only a good story like that book for me could get under it and start to really say well why is this here why do you believe what you believe actually make you question things well considering this is a podcast about talking about narratives (laughs) this could get a little bit meta but (laughs) yes that's true diving back into the narrative yeah well no i just i think you're right in the sense that when i look at fiction as a concept fiction is a safe place to go play with really dangerous ideas so it's like a it's kind of like an, a thought experiment where you go like if you take um crime and punishment for example the Dostoevsky classic you can't run that experiment in real life to figure out what you feel about the ethics and psychology of what Raskolnikov is going through right but you can in a novel and so you get all of the thoughts and the ideas that you can talk about without actually having to pay any sort of ethical price, very fortunately, based on <laughs> killing your landlord and her sister. <laughs> yeah, or or cheating on your significant other, which happens all the time. In so you, books. you can get away with a lot more in fiction than you can get away with in real life. One of the reasons I think that I am so opposed to this idea of censoring fiction such as re-editing classic stories for bad words that they use or something like this, is because the point of these stories, not the point, one of the things that these stories can do for us is to get to the absolute deepest levels of thinking, thinking about what we are and what we can be capable of and what we do and what we what we think about things without them actually happening in the real world. Well, it can even create new thoughts like the imagination creativity the human brain is not a processing machine it is an intu- intuiting machine and to be able to jump from conclusion to conclusion not understanding every step of the way that got you there computers have to take every step the human brain can jump and that i think is what narrative and fiction does is it allows us to jump it's like the old joke right star trek's coming true the door is open right the they have cell phones. Yeah, because people imagine that, and someone's like, wait, wait, what if we could do that? Wait, are you saying they invented cell phones because of Star Trek? Well, who knows? I, mean, I didn't know saying, about that. I'm just saying imagination is really cool. That's what I'm saying. Definitely. I mean, I think our brains are probably both intuitive and processing machines, right? I think that they have... I mean, the, the, <laughs> the mind is so complicated that the brain can do so many things. And I am so far from an expert on this other than right. knowing that the brain isn't just one or two or three things. It's, no, it's, it's probably thousands of different things. 
right? Yeah, and if we go down which to the is, cellular level, billions. Yeah, and which is, again, another cool thing about fiction is that it gets to go play with all those different parts of our brains to see what all those other parts of our brains think about that. Um, but also just to finish the thought of, I had a couple more things that I thought were um, non-ring things to pursue in my life. I really also enjoy sports. So soccer, hockey, ultimate frisbee. And orgasms aren't bad either, <laughs> I would have to say. <laughs> with Gollum, too, other than him killing Deagle and cutting off his friendship, it was, his, like, it was kind of the birth of his sneakiness. You know, and his tricksterhood. Uh, well, trickster makes it sound like it's too pot, it's like it's tame. like endearing yeah, or something. Yeah, no, no, it's he. He's he's like, I think I said it last time. He's conniving and selfish. And my thought with him is like, man, that what a waste of talent. Hey, like that. Smeagol is a talented guy. He's smart and he's craft. He's he could be thrifty. Like think if he used all of Gollum's powers for good, instead of yeah. just pretending they were for good. Like, well, it was more Smeagol helping. Frodo, but it was Smeagol being intimidated by Gollum to go take Frodo to Shelob. It's an interesting way of looking at it because the question is maybe, I think in the moment where he's dragging him away from the Black Gates, saying there's another way, that's all Gollum. Like, that's complete, I know what I gotta do. And the terror that you see in Gollum in that moment isn't that his buddy Frodo's gonna die. It's that the ring is going to go back to Sauron. Because what's the one thing Gollum wants less than anything? It's for someone else who will never lose the ring to get the ring again. Of course, yeah. Well, Sauron will get it. But I don't know. What do you think about if you're, again, Gollum pursuing, for quote on, black and term, the wrong thing, the ring, the wrong thing. It's a waste of his talents. Like he's using all of his craft to destroy Frodo, destroy, get the ring, I don't know, again, with our addict analogy, how much trickery is employed to get your fix again with like that sort of creativity that could go into something <laughs> at least a little bit more pro-social. Yeah, that's fair. I think, uh, I think it's a good point, and I think a lot of people in those places, it's not just addiction, it's, it's self-focus. Right? If you're really obsessed with yourself and you're always looking inward and you're not thinking about others, you're going to get to a place where you're hurting people and you don't even know you're hurting them. And that's not just addicts, right? Like uh, I have so many, there's so many stories out there of people who their, their parents were so petty about something that had happened 30 years ago that they wouldn't, they weren't allowed to hang out with their cousins or they were really upset by some event that occurred, like a, maybe it was a card game, right? And and they couldn't talk for, you know, months. I think that is abandoning, that abandoning of people is a self-focus. It's an addiction to self. And there's also an addiction to any number of things. But every time your focus is inward, you're going to be trying to fulfill some need. And whether that need is an addiction to a substance, addiction to yourself, an addiction to whatever matrix you're using, you're going to be hurting other people doing that. You become what you chase, Yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, what you chase also brings out the worst in you, in a sense. Because Gollum's awfulness is, is that horrible, weak, pathetic obsession with himself. Sauron 
this awfulness is this horrible burning obsession with power but for both of them the ring takes them down that path of obsession mm-hmm. poor little Gollum. thank <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, but you know what ends up being the hero of the whole thing accidentally <laughs> yeah that's uh the i would say that's an improper use of the word hero <laughs> <laughs> true true probably well intimately tied throughout this movie to Gollum is our poor little friend Frodo who's uh, gone through a lot by this point and as I mean anyone who's seen the movie just like this is easily the worst movie for Frodo how he's doing and even ethically I think he is pretty much totally he's almost slipped even from the beginning of the movie to being the worst version of Frodo like the ring has almost completely had its way with him thus far and one of the first things I noticed about um, something that can be extrapolated about some ugliness of Frodo in this is that he really starts to equivocate about Gollum's character. So when Sam is <laughs> incessantly pointing out to Frodo, he's bad. He'll kill us. He'll throttle us in our sleep. Don't trust him. <laughs> like I know. Come on. How do you not know? He kind of he gives like half-hearted defenses for Gollum and in a way that he kind of just wants Sam to shut up about it. Or when he gets really into it, he's like really angry with Sam about Sam picking on Gollum all the time. Right. And this made me think about, there's still a part of Frodo's brain, especially with how ferociously he responds to Sam in some of the scenes. There's a part of Frodo's brain that still understands that he's making rationalizations about Gollum because he needs him for something. Right. So he's, making some sort of compromise on what he knows is like, for lack of a better term, the right thing to do because of what he thinks Gollum can do for him. So even though Gollum is, let's now, say, a bad actor, yeah, Gollum could still do something for him. And Frodo is a little bit caught in no hobbit's land yeah. <laughs> about that. And it's a little bit of bad faith on Frodo's part. So it made me think like, man, even if you're around this person or thing that can do something for you keeping in mind all of the negative things about it sometimes in the long term it's just better to let go and find another solution that isn't soul corrupting like Gollum appears to be for Frodo hmm I think I think I disagree because when he's attaching himself to Frodo or sorry to, to Gollum let's think let's dig down to what is Gollum to Frodo I agree there's that relationship of like you're like me you've gone through this weirdness like we're both broken together kind of thing but also and I think the main reason that Frodo's holding on to Gollum is Gollum's the only way that he can complete his mission if you think about what Sam's going Sam is saying Sam's right about Gollum but Frodo's also right in a sense because Frodo knows I can't get to Mount Doom without Gollum. He's the only one who knows the path. Or so Frodo tells himself. Right. Yeah, maybe there maybe there's another path. Yeah, <laughs> right? that's fair. That's that's like what what Frodo and Gollum's actual relationship is is not as important because what it evoked in me was the thought of okay, well, a healthier-minded Frodo might have the strength to figure out a different way in to Mordor and Mount Doom, even if it was way harder, because it still wasn't worth the equivocations and the post hoc justifications he had to make about the unethical nature of Gollum. 
where he's compromising. He's he's like giving Sam shit all the time for giving Gollum shit, even though Sam is the only one who, in this context, can see what Gollum really is. So regardless of whether or not <laughs> Frodo thinks... Well, I think the problem is Frodo, at some level, is tricking himself into believing he does need Gollum to do this task. And again, that's the ring. So it's a little bit of an aside to what it might make a person think about. Let's just take it outside of Lord of the Rings to... I can relate to the feeling of, oh... There's something about this person that I don't totally like or don't totally vibe with. Maybe they made a comment. Maybe there's like a slur or something. They haven't done anything specifically bad, but I just not feeling it. But they um, stand to do me a favor. They stand to be a reference for me at a job. They stand to be something that can get me up the next rung. And so I don't want to ruffle any feathers, even though... All my spidey senses are tingling and I'm starting to realize that probably being around this person might, there's a potential for some soul corruption to go on. But I'm torn, so I'm going to rationalize my relationship because subconsciously, very deep, they stand to do me something positive. That adds some kind of validation to my life. Well, validation or promotion, right? It's validation if you want to talk about it psychologically promotion or status upgrade if you want to talk about it socially and in return of the king golem stands to do a big favor for frodo that might be a lot harder to do if frodo has to figure out a different way to do it and sam is pricking at frodo's bad conscience at that and frodo unfortunately seems a little bit too far gone where he says you know what sam it's easier to deal with you than with my bad conscience about this. So I'm going to deal with you because I know actually you'll always be loyal to me. Right. I'll go I'll go after you cuz you can take it and you'll still love me. Because... So again, this doesn't have to be what actually is happening in the plot of the Lord of the Rings. It just made me think about something yeah. in that scenario. Yeah. That's a very you know good I mean? that's a very good thought like how do we treat the people who love us the most and why aren't we treating them as well as we could? Maybe it's better to take the harder path. Or find an alternate solution to whatever it is that we're hoping this person can stand to do for us. Or group of people. Or scenario. Or job. Like, it doesn't have to be a person. Just anything that is, there's just something off about it. Or there's something underhanded. Or it's excluding people. Or excluding something. And let's just say it's a person who very clearly demonizes an out-group but you are in their in-group and they're going to treat you well, but they're going to treat others poorly. And they're only nice to people who can do something for them. And they're rude to people who can't do anything for them. I actually (laughs) have two basic heuristics that I use to determine whether what I think about another person, how they treat people who can't do anything for them. So I think like servers in a restaurant or homeless people, (laughs) right? How do they treat how does a person treat someone who can't do anything for them and uh, what they do with a grocery cart in the parking lot after getting groceries. <laughs> those, are, those are your only two. You oh have man. Nothing you else? Leave, if you leave your cart in a parking lot, you're going straight to hell. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, you, you should definitely, it's not hard to put it back. And so unfortunately again, poor Frodo is a slave to the ring in many ways by this point in the movie. And so 
it's kind of making him lose his mind. He's kind of going a little bit insane and it's destroying his ability to make good choices, <laughs> clearly. And so he becomes even more reliant on Gollum. And all of this stress is leading to paranoia, <laughs> right? There's like some intense paranoia, which probably also, I think, is not an uncommon attribute in addicts every now and again. It reminds me of that Harvey Danger song. Paranoia, paranoia, everybody's coming to get me. And like, he thinks Sam is coming to get him, right? When um, there's that scene where Golem plants uh, the, the last of the Lemba bread that the elves gave them on Sam's tunic and wakes them up. Gollum wakes them up and then says, oh, that hobbit, he stole it. He stole your last food. And this is the last straw for Frodo, right? And it's heartbreaking because he tells Sam to leave. Sam being the only character, person, entity that has been with him no matter what. And Frodo says go. And I mean, this is, even though they're way up on a cliff, this has got to be part of Frodo's rock bottom. Well, this is a tragedy for for Frodo, too, because on a basic level, he is denying his own reality, and he's, he's conceiving of this world that doesn't exist, and he's doing that to justify his addiction. He's saying he's literally rationalizing that Sam's been corrupted by the ring and wants the ring. He wants it from Frodo. He's in this place of paranoia, but he's also still like, let's remember that the addict can act in love. And he's thinking, what happened to Boromir when the ring got him? And he's using it as his rationalization to push the last person in his life who cares about him away to say, I'm protecting you by pushing you away. So you think that's what Frodo was doing? Was protecting Sam? No, I think that's what he was rationalizing he was doing in order to keep to his addiction. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Just rationalizations all the way down, hey? Well, yeah, but like, no human can truly believe they're that level of evil. You have to convince yourself that you're doing something for a right reason, right? Like, even Hitler thought he was preserving what some, he had some messed up, fucked up view that he was preserving the goodness in humanity with his, with his, he was like, his mind was completely twisted, but he justified it to himself. Frodo's mind's completely twisted here. Sam's never going to betray him. Sam, we already have seen Sam's character up to this point and continue to see it. Frodo's betraying himself by coming up with a reason to reject Sam. Yeah, well, that point about Frodo reminds me of an idea from the social psychologist, or I don't know if he's a social psychologist, but at least the psychologist uh, Jonathan Haidt, when he talks about how um, human decision-making is often like a, a rider riding an elephant, and the rider representing our reason and our logic and the elephant representing our emotions and our desires and our impulses and how like kind of the elephant goes where it wants to. And then the rider kind of tries its best to keep it in something of a semblance of a path or on a road. Right. <laughs> yeah, He's still kind of doing whatever he wants. So but... yeah, that, that dovetails really nicely with what all of these rationalizations that, Frodo and Hitler, I guess. Are yeah, I guess I did the what is it the uh, Hitler Abazerta? My foot off the track. Well, uh, I Frodo's already having a tough tough time. Yeah, we I don't know how much he'll appreciate that. 
But I guess my point is, so here he is. Again, It's I like this comparison. Maybe it's because I'm the one that's drawing it. But between Sauron and Gollum, right? It's the weaker nature, the pathetic, conniving versus the powerful, strong, ferocious, complete and utter evil. Frodo is, is this is the, the pathetic side of evil. He's rationalizing his own weakness and, and, and putting it and creating it as a virtue in himself. And he's saying the virtue is that I'm protecting my friend. You're not protecting your friend, Frodo. You're hurting your friend in a way that killing them could never hurt them. If Frodo had let Sam die protecting him, Frodo would have felt a lot, or Sam would have felt a lot better about that than being told, get out of here. I don't totally. want to be here anymore. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right about that. But what I thought about next in this scene with Sam in a story chock full of Sam as hero moments, I feel like internally this part for Sam is actually his most heroic because he does something here that just rang so true for me is that even though he physically leaves Frodo's side, he goes down. The one thing he never does is he never psychologically abandons Frodo. He never to himself says, I don't care about Frodo. I was reminded a little bit of in, 19, in the novel 1984, Big Brother doesn't win until Winston loves Big Brother. And the only way Winston loves Big Brother is if he can not love Julia anymore. Because Big Brother commands he can't love Julia. Yeah. yeah. So Big Brother doesn't win until they control Winston's thoughts. They can control his body. They can control his environment. But until they have his thoughts, until thought crime wins, they don't win, right? And even though Sam is physically separated, Frodo still has his loyalty in Sam's thoughts. He sees the canvas bread broken on the ground. He's like, holy crap, this was all a plan by Gollum. I got to get back to Frodo and save him. Mm -hmm. Well, so to me, it's like the deepest part of friendship is to never psychologically abandon someone. Uh, Or, I mean, that might be a clinical way to put it, but to never abandon someone in your thoughts. So even though they're pushing you away, or even if you're angry at them and you walk away or something, until you've said no to them in the privacy of your own mind, you haven't abandoned them yet. Right. And Sam never does that. So it's interesting that's a cuz so let's talk about being away from people and you know not being able to be around them as much as you wanted to on a on a real level. At what point have you abandoned them? Like is it when you're not thinking about them very often or is it when you don't think about them at all anymore or you know that's it's another way of looking at it. I know you're talking about like you you've never turned on them because even though they're hurting you. But I'm talking also about like maybe distance is getting in the way. How, how do you know when you've turned your thoughts on people that you're distant from? Well, in the day-to-day living of normal life, abandon might be a little bit too heavy of a word to use. But I think a sign that you have drifted beyond the point of being someone's real friend would be if you stop caring about things that matter to them. So if... A band, you see, let's say, a band's coming to town that you know they like, but you don't reach out and let them know. That's a little bit of a sign that they're not meaningful to you as they once were. 
because well like sam would do anything to go back and help frodo right and the lemba's bread that he finds at the bottom is that galvanizing force because he finds out Gollum tricked frodo and now <laughs> frodo is abandoned to the monster <laughs> yeah like right about to be dead and he'll be back sam is always willing to make a positive step back to frodo when the opportunity rises right and he obviously does it unhesitatingly hesitantly (laughs) he goes fast he goes real fast up that goddamn mountain or cliff not abandoning someone psychologically is i think maybe it's cliche but it's like having their best interests at heart when you go about when it's clear to you that there's a moment where they can re-enter your life in some way because of your volition and you do it and you actually do it you haven't psychologically abandoned that person yeah right no that's a good point point. and so uh, i'm also even i'm mindful of this in relating it to ro- romantic relationships where all the stock is put in sexual infidelity like that's the infidelity that matters right whether you sleep with someone or not but there isn't a lot of talk about things like emotional infidelity. If I was with someone and I saw that they were have being happy with someone who they hadn't slept with, but the kind of day-to-day operational role of being the funny, fun, dependable person for that person is being, that role is now being played by someone else. That actually would hurt me a lot more or not, I, mean, I don't know about a lot more, but on an equal footing with them sleeping with that person and just never talking to them. Because that's a, that's, that's a bit of a psychological abandonment. Yeah, it, it, it's like we're going to do our second reference to a past podcast, folks. <laughs> it's like uh, you're an orphan, right? The, that phrase, you're an orphan. Maybe you're not an orphan. Maybe your parents didn't die, but they didn't care about you. That's a devastating phrase. It's, it's when people stop caring about you that that really the love is gone hatred is not the the opposite of love indifference right we all know that but when you become indifferent about what's happening in a friend's life you don't even want to hear from them that's when you know that, that the love is lost and sam never loses that yeah and which is why again internally um which to me is the wellspring and the fountainhead of all good things in life all good things in life except for maybe nature stem from somebody's mind they come from somebody's brain everything you see in the world other than nature came from someone's brain you're listening to this on a device that came from someone's brain right you're reading books and watching movies that came from someone's brain you're listening to words that came from someone's brain. so this the internal to external is for me is almost sacred like that's something i really would (laughs) that's the cross I'll die on kind of thing is protecting humans ability to put their thoughts in the world if they want to. And Sam just exemplifies this in the most heroic way possible because he never abandons Frodo in his mind. And even when he has every reason to Frodo has given Sam every reason to say, fuck you dude and walk away he still doesn't. Yeah, and and that's that is heroism, and as we see, that's why Sam's the hero of this story. Which 
I think Sam is the hero of this story. I We've agreed. Think. Sam yeah. is hero. Stamp. RTF. Boom. RTF <laughs> approval. Real hero. Yeah. It's not Aragorn. It's not Legolas. It's not Gimli. It's Sam. RTH. Sam really Wa- true hero. <laughs> Sam Wiles Gamgee. <laughs> so with then Sam coming back, saving Frodo from Shelob. Does that happen in the book? I honestly don't remember. Yeah, but it's a little bit different in the book. And I think... like. Sam does end up having to bear the ring. No, I think Frodo kills. I'm not going to. Book purists, not remembering this properly. I know they're both different. Well, Sam returns. Frodo, again, too late, but not too late, learns his lesson um, with Sam coming back and saving him. And then uh, Frodo realizing, oh, my God, Sam was. (laughs) Sam was what I thought Gollum was. Here we go. We got to so, get to Mount Doom. We can I was see so it now. tricked. Yeah, they can see it. And <laughs> Sam literally carries Frodo. <laughs> he doesn't just... <laughs> I may not be able to bear it, but I'll carry you. I can't carry it, but I'll carry you. There is no end to the to this guy's awesomeness. And I just... Like a, a, a little thought on Sam again, maybe a final meditation on him, is that... And this is probably partly Tolkien, partly my reading into it. But Sam, like we just said, being the greatest character in the story, is still not perfect. No, not <laughs> you know? at all. Like I love he's that he's not a he's, very good warrior. Even I, he's like so courageous and he's so stout-hearted. Maybe I'm nitpicky, but he's kind of he's like not that smart. <laughs> what it does show is that this is an area of growth or development for Sam. It's not just all courage or all heart. Those those matter. Like, I actually think to be as fulfilled as possible, you need to have your head and your heart in as symbiotic a relationship as they possibly can be. And Sam eventually gets tricked. Like, he gets outsmarted by Gollum. Gollum gets the better of him. He outsmarts him. He figures out how to get at Sam's weak spot, which I believe he's sleeping. Which, <laughs> But... Sam lets his guard down. He doesn't think about it for a second. He's outsmarted. And need being able to use intelligence sometimes is what you need to stand up to Gollum or a dark presence. It, courage is amazing and it's wonderful. Sometimes you need to be Harry Potter, but sometimes you need to be Hermione. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Sam could just potentially use a little bit more development there. But again, that's like not a criticism of Sam. That is a actual glowing endorsement of Tolkien. And I and guess the fact that he's not making perfect heroes here. We're, we're not Mary Jane yet. There's a, a real understanding that even the most perfect heroes, if you, and the, you're really good at character development. If you can develop a character, we can talk about this way with authority from watching the movies and and reading the book, this character is a knowable person. And for me personally, finding these imperfections is actually what makes me like the character so much more. And actually, (laughs) I use this term loosely, but actually believe that they're able to do the great things that they're able to do because they aren't just magic. They're not just all power, here you go, all Superman, no kryptonite kind of thing. So this is actually pointing out the flaws in Sam is a roundabout me of way of me saying that I actually love him that much more because I believe 
like as a watcher of this movie, I believe in his ability to actually do the great things that he can do because he, he seems real. Yeah. You're, you, you're, <laughs> as much as a hobbit can. Your suspension of disbelief is not taken away because they're as real as they can be. And yeah, it's, it's, that's great storytelling. Finally, Frodo. Poor Frodo. Yes. And yes. I have to say, preface this, this breaks my heart to say, because I do want to be on Team Frodo, but at least in the movie, again, I don't remember in the book, so this is just from the movie, in the end, Frodo fails. He fails as a hero. He is exactly like a sealder. Uh, he's at the very, he's in the crater of Mount Doom. He's at the edge. He can just throw the ring into the lava and destroy it. And he says no, and he puts it on. And the only reason the ring gets destroyed is because of an accident. Basically, Gollum runs in. He jumps on an invisible Frodo. He bites his finger off. He falls into the lava, and that's how the ring is destroyed. So the ring does get destroyed, but it's only because accidentally Gollum. And I mean, hearkening back to Gandalf's comment in the Mines of Moria, perhaps Gollum has some role to play yet still. Like, obviously, narrative foreshadowing. But... Unfortunately, at the expense of Frodo being, in the end, a character worth venerating. So I think there's a a lot of interesting things here, but one of the things is it's great storytelling to have a twist and to have the hero reach the end and not be able to pull off the task. And you're like, oh, no, is this all going to end in tears because humans aren't strong enough? Are you just going to make us all feel sad? Again. I thought all the trolls were in The Hobbit. (laughs) Right? And then we see kind of not just the worldview of Tolkien, but a little bit of the reality of existence. A random happenstance saves everything. I was just reading a book about there was this uh, soldier who'd been in First World War, or Second World War, Korean War, and Vietnam War. This guy is a hero by, you know, by every rubric that you use on the patriotism scale. But he goes crazy and he decides he's going to shoot up the Congress in his uh, in his local state. But by some fluke of happenstance, none of the people that were supposed to be there that day were. And not only that, there was a guy who'd also been a war hero at one point who was in the building when this guy starts trying to shoot it up, and he's furious because none of the lawmakers are there. He's trying to kill, like, the elites of the state or whatever, and nobody's there. And so if he's, he's, he's shooting around. He's just going crazy. This guy just walks up to him and says, I'm a soldier too. The guy's, like, waving the gun in his face, just angry, right? And he takes out a smoke, lights it, and says, I'm a soldier too. Would you like a smoke? Ends up sitting down and talking with him, talks him out of killing all these people. And we're like... Why is that important? It's because the hero, it has to be human, right? Frodo, Frodo fails, but but random happenstance that that soldier was there in the story I just told, that Gollum's there, they provide an out. And often in life, you're going to have an opportunity that's just going to present itself. I guess so. <laughs> uh, I'm very glad that that was the outcome in the story you told with the two soldiers but if then if i have to compare those two stories frodo then is a soldier who wants to kill lots of other people yeah basically he's letting everyone die like if we think about the gravity of what he's doing here 
He's got all the way to Mount Doom. He's Doom. He's standing on the edge, about to throw the ring in, and he's willing to everyone who's helped him. Yeah, but everyone die. Yeah, but again, well, okay, but all I'm saying is that, like, again, I think this will be an unpopular <laughs> assertion, but I think Frodo is uh, not as bad as any of the villains, but he he does fail as a hero. Like, think about the heroes in the other epics. Like, directly compare Frodo to Harry Potter and Luke Skywalker in their in their most rubber meets the road moment. Harry Potter spoilers <laughs> deathly hallow spoilers harry potter volunteers his own life to save his friends and he doesn't need a golem biting off his finger and pushing him in to accidentally do that and in return of the jedi when luke skywalker has vader dead to rights has his arm cut off and just one more and then the emperor comes walking down the stairs and is clapping and he says basically to Luke, "You're oh, good, you will take your place at my side. And in this moment, Luke is able to stop and throw his lightsaber and says, no, I'll never join you. I'll never join the dark side. So essentially choosing death again, like Harry Potter does, to not corrupt his soul again. And Frodo chooses to corrupt his soul yeah. in a way that Harry and Luke don't in the deepest moment and so yeah i'm just i'm i'm left the climax of return of the king when they just when the ring gets destroyed it did leave me feeling sadder than i wanted to because i really wanted frodo in that deep moment like the it's i'm sure there's a word for it in storytelling but it's not it's it's the moment of deepest choice what's the most important decision that our hero has to make and the decision to actually destroy the ring, I think, is Frodo's moment, where Luke's moment was deciding whether or not to kill Vader and join the Emperor, and he decided What's not that, to. That Frodo, no! Right when Frodo puts the ring on, that's Sam. Frodo, no! His last cry is, "Don't do it, buddy." Yeah, don't do it. Well, I mean, if if there's, it's probably, I guess, in a sense, a reveal that actually Sam is our hero. Yeah, like the the final nail in the coffin to know for sure that that's actually <laughs> be like in star wars tricking us the whole time actually han solo is the hero in the end right <laughs> yeah, this is the one yeah. who's been doing everything for everyone so I, I like i like what you have to say there are there are heroes that succeed you're right uh, in lots of stories they do but i think one of the things that makes tolkien's story so special is he, even his hero as we've been pointing out through this whole thing even his hero isn't a hero because his hero is Frodo, like that's pretty obvious. Well, Frodo's a protagonist. He's a protagonist, but even he succumbs, right? And it it turns out that there's bigger things going on, and and something else is happening in the in this book. And who's the real hero of Lord of the Rings? Sam, sure. Sam on a character. If we're talking about people, like being a person, Sam is the hero. He's the best person. He's the best character. But the hero is random chance in a sense. It's, but it's it's really that thing that Gandalf talked about back in Moria. It's the virtues you you present at any given time can reverberate throughout society. Right? You might help one person, and who knows what that person's going to become. 
you might help one, you might teach one child some important virtue that they need that they then go on to solve. Like the guy who small, solved smallpox, the lives he saved, who knows the people who played into his life. But at the end of the day, we don't know the impact our choices are going to have and the impact of the choice that Bilbo made to spare Gollum saved Middle Earth. Yes, I agree. And I like that sentiment a lot. Put good out into the world because you don't know how far it will travel, for sure. But I just wish maybe that they could have done that also better narratively because narratively what ends up happening is it's random chance that tipped in our favor because it's not like Gollum did it out of kindness. No. <laughs> he didn't grab the ring from Frodo and say, no, Frodo, I've come to this epiphany. Because Bilbo saved me that one time, I now know I have to throw it in the fire myself and save all of you, right? Again, it's Gollum jumps on him and just wants it again. It's again, it's two addicts fighting over their fix. Yeah, and two addicts Which, fighting over their fix saved the world. At the great risk of criticizing that decision i just feel like it is beneath the grandeur of lord of the rings to have it be resolved in that manner and that's just a quip with how it's done but yes that idea of that you were talking about i do agree with i like that sentiment a lot and it is uh, the right one (laughs) yeah well it's hopefully the one to live your life by if not the one to read this is the the optimistic way to to choose that way is the optimistic way to interpret <laughs> that yeah. scene with Frodo and Gollum and Sam in Mount Doom. Yeah, okay, there we go. There's the optimistic <laughs> way. All right. Again, apologies to all Frodo nerds out there and everyone who had a poster of Elijah Wood on their door. <laughs> there, were, there were a lot of those. So <laughs> I'm saying it's Frodo, not Elijah Wood. He's great. Moving on. To the next Hobbit is Pippin, and Pippin plays a big role in this film too. Probably the biggest he plays in any of the three, given that he (laughs) causes so much trouble for Gandalf again. Because when Gandalf gets the, I believe they're called Palantirs, the Seeing Stones, the Seeing Stone from Saruman or from Isengard, and he brings it, I I guess they're in Rohan. He he gives it to Gandalf, Gandalf puts it in a blanket, but then when Gandalf's taking a nap, he's like... Attracted to the Palantir in the because he sees it originally in Isengard. Yeah, and he's like, and he's attracted to it in the. And interestingly enough, the same way m- many people are attracted to the Ring. For him, this is a desire to know. Th- it's a desire that's been instilled in him by just glimpsing it, to know the you know forbidden things. Yeah. So when I saw, basically Pippin's reckless desire to get at the Palantir. I thought of, okay, so what Pippin is showing here is the dark side of curiosity. If it's too impulsive and not not doing enough to explore the danger around something by other people who know more about it than he does. You know, he it's he, like that it's a morbid curiosity, right? He he knows it's dangerous, he knows it's bad. And it's not like a temptation or an addiction. It's you're right. It's the dark side of curiosity. It's like you can go down a path of wondering about things that takes you into very dark places. Yeah. So it reminded me of the difference between a juvenile and a mature curiosity where Pippin is exemplifying a very juvenile (laughs) curiosity here where he's 
he's sneaking, right? He he again, he's got a bit of a bad conscience. He can he knows he's not doing what he should be doing. Whereas, and who knows how receptive Gandalf would have been to his questions, but obviously, at this point in the story, Pippin knows Gandalf. Though he's good, he's not much for nonsense or putting up with (laughs) dangerous things, right? So the entire way Gandalf has reacted to this seeing stone should put up all the warning flags for Pippin to be like, okay, this is a big deal. This is an important thing. I am curious about it, but I I think the right thing to do is because Gandalf knows way more than I do about it, and it seems to be dangerous. I should probably just ask him, like at least start there, ask him questions about it. And even if he shuts me down, asking other people, because who knows what kind of shit I'm going to get myself into (laughs) And these are all the thoughts Pippin's not having. No, Pippin's just looking at it, and he's like, I want to look into that again, because that was cool. And it's like you said, it's a very juvenile thing. It's like juvenile interests in what, whatever it might be. It's an, it's an obsession with something to the point of not even thinking about the consequences. Well, and you don't know the depth of the danger you might be putting yourself or other people into by going and exploring these things incautiously, because that's exactly what Pippin is. You go to your teenager, you go to a part of town or a, or a, a place you maybe like should ask more questions about, but you're being feeling rebellious or uh, you do, so you don't take into account thoughtful, wise people's opinions on that location. Pippin doesn't have a healthy regard for the thoughts on the seeing stone of people who know better than him and who have more wisdom than he does. And it almost takes them all down at least in the story and symbolically that can really be a good thought for a responsible caution to a potentially dangerous situation that he does not heed yeah i it's interesting because when you think of juvenile when you use the word juvenile it makes me think of someone who's young but juvenile sense of curiosity can last your whole life you can become you can you can just never really take things seriously. And there are things that need to be taken seriously in life. There's responsibilities you got to shoulder and say, this is a thing I have to do. Like People are counting on me. People's lives depend on me. Whatever it might be, whether your job is being a teacher and, and like raising children to, to know things or, or all the way to your job is a garbage man. And if you're not picking up the garbage then people's houses are going to start to stink. The streets are going to get bad. Like everyone is, is playing this role and you can look at it one way or the other. You can look at it in that negative way of, of saying, no, nah, it doesn't matter. Right. What, what I'm doing. I'm just not going to, I'll be juvenile about it. I'll just do my thing and go home. And, and then you can spend your life not shouldering those responsibilities, not taking even the things you're doing for your livelihood seriously. Yeah. Or you can start taking life seriously mm-hmm. and saying, no, like I need to do these things, not just for me, because the the action I'm taking in the world has consequences on everybody else. And if I'm not doing these things, people will suffer even if they don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like if you can't overcome that, you're stuck in your default setting, <laughs> which yeah, is, you know, the selfish human setting. Kind of hedonistic just obsession with whatever yeah. gives, makes you feel good at the time. Because Pippin doesn't have a 
like it doesn't appear to have like a single transcendent thought in that whole time it's just focused on that thing he wants and the palantir itself is a super dangerous tool right Which gandalf has made clear like gandalf has shown deep respect for this tool yeah like you, it's it's like a kid who doesn't understand that a stove is hot yeah or <laughs> going to a carpenter's work area and just playing with the saw yeah you don't just play <laughs> play with these dangerous a fool tools. of a took <laughs> and his fingers are soon part uh, are soon parted yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and that was really well captured in the book and the movie of pippin succumbing to his immaturity in a way that can be so dangerous. I mean, there's both a kind of, what would you call it? Maybe like a, I think youth is often considered both a gift and slightly disdained (laughs) by older folk in the world. Because again, often with younger people, you're seeing people make mistakes that you just feel like, oh, you don't have to make those mistakes. Or maybe you already made them and you wish you hadn't, right? There's also that side of regret being like, Oh, you know, it's that great line from Lord of the Rings that, I, or sorry, from a Game of Thrones that I love. You sweet summer child, right? It's like you, you have not seen Pippin the, the sweet summer child. A, he is the sweet summer child of, of Lord of the Rings for sure. Yeah. Well, maybe he is what in Great Expectations when Pip is inside, he's Pip in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> But yeah, again, though, fortunately, this is well done narratively again, because this is like the impetus to what ends up becoming Pippin's redemption, because he gets sent to Gondor, to Minas Tirith, to basically be, well, he doesn't, he doesn't get sent there to be, but he tells Denethor, the steward of Gondor, about Boromir, or that he knew Boromir, and then I guess kind of out of contrition through the Palantir and Boromir, he tells Denethor he will be like, I don't know, like a squire or a page there or something and will serve him. So he kind of becomes his Denethor's like a cupbearer. servant, yeah, right? Yeah. And this is so great because uh, Denethor is probably the, the the great character that's only in this movie because he's not really in, I don't think he's in the other two at all. He, he doesn't have- here at all he's maybe referenced a couple times yeah but like my dad my father the steward of god yeah denethor faramir and boromir's father and i like his character because he appears to me to take he's like i think i mentioned this last time contrasted to theoden where in that moment of being tested theoden goes one way which is the he shakes off the negative influences the negative well grima to get back in touch with his true mind and denethor chooses to stay self-pitying through all this he doesn't choose to get back to his own backbone and and here's a a a point of uh going back again to our last episode about this there's the difference between the homicidal and the suicidal right these two different reactions, they're, they are to the same question, which is what happens when all hope is lost to a degree. And in the case of Theoden, we see depression. And in the case of De- Denethor, we see rage. We and- see a desire to destroy, not just, not just everything that he loves, because he's already lost the, his favorite son. 
he's going to burn his other son alive and he's going to destroy himself. It's like it is a desire for destruction. We're not seeing that with Theoden. Theoden has just become weak and slow and old and tired, but he's not trying to destroy anything. No. With Denethor, we see destruction. And these are two different reactions that people can have to hopelessness. Mm-hmm. There are people without hope who want to destroy things. Yeah, I mean, I I think, again, Jordan Peterson calls it the unbearableness of being that some people can't handle. Uh, and I know Peterson talks about people, like people who shoot up schools are the kind of people that are so spiteful of being that they'd rather take other people out with them as they go kind of thing, that homicidal thing that, I mean, literally in this, in the case of school shooters. Uh, and yet from what, what, what's kind of heartbreaking to me for Denethor is that I do like his sadness does stem. It appears to me anyway, it stems from an authentic grief that he's feeling about losing Boromir. Like it's very clear. I mean, I don't know. We, we don't know because it's not in the story, but it does seem underneath all of that ickiness that is Denethor, like he did love Boromir. I mean, he probably loves Boromir too, <laughs> although less. But what is so tragic about Denethor is that it's what he does with the grief, right? Yeah, the grief destroys him. Yeah, the grief, rather than using that, or not using, rather than that grief being something that can galvanize him to defending Gondor from the encroaching evil, he just retreats further and further into his own, he's maximizing self-pity and self-righteousness. And these are such ugly bedfellows. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I know I bring him up a lot, but C.S. Lewis called this worm pride. Right, it's like everything's bad. I, it's a pride in your own filth and squalor, and but it's obviously it's not a pride in filth and squalor. In the case of Denethor, it is a pride in his own pain. It's an obsession with your pain. Right, everybody suffers, but when you become obsessed with your pain, and your pain becomes defining of you, that's when your pain destroys you, and it goes, keeps going down and down and down. And it can always get worse with this kind of attitude. I just thought of something like I'm not a utilitarian exactly, but I realize that Denethor's motivations are the utilitarian's nightmare because <laughs> he cares more about Boromir than he does about Minas Tirith. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he when cares. We're he thinking cares. about the good of the many. The good of the many is not being served here. Yeah, at he cares all. more about a dead person than all the alive people in the city that he's responsible for. Right. Yeah, this is not a good ruler. This is not your your philosopher king. <laughs> and then to make it even worse. He throws away Faramir for his pride. It's the destructiveness of his own ego where he won't even listen to the idea that Faramir isn't dead. He just says, another son dead. We must burn him. And he's just so far gone here. And it's like, man, (laughs) this is clearly, this is a country that needs a king. Yeah, like, Stuarts aren't going to cut it anymore. I hope there's a king coming. (laughs) Maybe he'll return. (laughs) Leaders do this, though. People do this, right? They give up. And I think of, uh, there's a great book called Our Children. It's a sociology text, but 
one of the things that I've always found profound is one of the highest rate of problematic children is when the father just leaves. And and really, Gondor has lost its father. That's what yeah, the king is. Exactly. He is losing it, right? Like, he is... I guess he's kind of losing his mind, but he's also taking all of that negative information from the world. So with the comparison with Thaden, Thaden's getting all this negative information from Grima, but Denethor's getting all this negative information filtered from like many sources and then just choosing to wallow in defeat. I think he's got a line. I can't remember exactly. He's like, well, this is the day Gondor goes extinct or this is the end of men or something like that. Like he's quit, but he's not willing to just go out by himself. He's got to no, take a fair He's got to blow. Him, yeah. He's got to go out put, a blaze of glory. Yeah. Right? Okay. So how do you deal with this? Well, you stand up to him. Pippin tries. And I think Pippin ends up saving Faramir, isn't yeah, well, no. Pippin tells the other soldiers that they have to save Faramir. Cause well, does, and does Gandalf ride in and, and take Gandalf him off? shows up and kind of takes care of... Fa- Gandalf likes to show up and take care of shit. And so, in Lord of the Rings, Denethor is not the big bad, right? He's not the deep evil, but he is <laughs> like a useful idiot for the big evil, and he, he gets in the way of good people standing up to Sauron and the Nazgul, etc., and so he's in that sense like just awful because he's an impediment he's not quite a saruman he's just he's so representative of the utter self-destruction of ego and narcissism where he would rather see the destruction of his city than in any way needing to humble himself, right? He'd rather see the destruction of himself than any sort of humbling. letting go of this image that he had of himself or even his own success or whatever it is. He would rather not just see the destruction of himself, because that's one way of going, but see the destruction of everything. He, He wants it all to burn. And Pippin, again, being the the character that puts into motion, saving Faramir from that, I think is his redemptive moment. Yeah, that's his moment where he he does the right thing even though it's hard. He's not just pursuing his passions anymore. He's he's confronting the most powerful person he's ever met. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, like maybe to give Denethor a epitaph greater than he deserves. He stands in in this story as a as a warning. Careful your ego and your narcissism. Because it can send you burning off a cliff. So from one sad leader to one amazing one, in the end, my uh, perennial thought about Theoden in Return of the King is in that scene where they light, I, I can't remember what they're called, but they light all of those massive torches, I guess, even though they're more like bonfires. And one of Theoden's aides runs in and says, It's the blah, blah, blah. Gondor uh, asks for help. And Theoden has this like big dramatic pause. And then it's like, And Rohan will answer. <laughs> and this is like, a great scene. Okay, it's, this is Theoden's. When the fires are going on those mountaintops, yeah. and you're like, What's. 
going to happen. We know that Gondor's in need. Mm-hmm. And what's Gondor didn't come. Gondor didn't come for Rohan. Will Rohan come for Gondor? Well, and, I don't know if they had the ability to. No, I mean, yeah, they're fighting off an orc arm. No, I, I agree, but like, you can sometimes feel like maybe you don't know your friends don't have the ability to help you in some moment. But I think, well, I would say the biggest reason Thaden does choose to help is because Aragorn helps at, hel- at yeah, Helm's Deep, brings right? people to help, yeah. I agree, but it's also a cool, I'm going to come. And, and Rohan will answer. And Rohan will answer. I know he didn't say it exactly that, in an Irish that, accent <laughs> like this, but I just like saying it like that, is, you know? It, you know, that's interesting because my favorite Thaden moment in the whole movie is when he's riding in front of his army, pumping them up. He's getting them going. He's like, look at I that. I thought that was Mel Gibson. <laughs> now for wrath. Now for ruin and a red dawn. <laughs> That's the one I remember. I think we already shared in Two Towers all of the things we, we really admire about Theoden and his character, but uh, I just have a little thought here about his end. He's got a line when he's dying. I think he says this to Eowyn where he says, I now go to my father's, in whose company I will not now feel ashamed. And so I thought, okay, what this is, is Theoden feeling like he's earned his place among his ancestors, right? Like he's done something in his life to create a world that is worthy of the world that his ancestors helped create for him. And it kind of it struck me as this thought of, man, what if, not what if, like, I think one of the points of life or the point of life maybe is to be a good ancestor yourself. Right. And yeah. then earn your place in the midst of the ancestors who came before all of us, who've done so much to bequeath us a world worth having. Well, there's a, there's a humility in that too, right? There is an understanding that of your place in the universe. You're not the most important thing that's ever been. You won't be, but maybe you can be one of the most impo- or just an impactful thing. Right. And I think of technology actually when it comes to this. I think of the ease at which with which we can do things because of the things that our ancestors imagined. Some of the people listening to this podcast won't remember a time before cell phones. And cell phones are only the newest ease creating machine that that has made our lives so different than any we can order food on our phone to be delivered 30 minutes later to our house yeah because of so many great ancestors (laughs) and you know what maybe that's there's 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 pros and cons to that but i think the point is can we make life better for the people who come after us the best time to plant a tree was yesterday and the second best time is today the sincere short answer to that question is yes of course i think that that's actually what the job of being a person is is working to help leave a world and a culture and an I- place of ideas and a marketplace of living that is at least a little bit better for having had you there in it and better for the people who come after you 10 years, 50 years, 100 years from now. And I just want to like be clear. I mean, <laughs> the point of life is to be a good ancestor. That's not like a metaphysical claim or anything. I don't think that there's like a platonic form of being a good ancestor that exists. I think it's probably different for any individual. But 
we have inherited a world, especially in the West, that we should be grateful for every second of every day. And how do we live as a Theoden? What can we do to make our place among those who've come before us and given us so much? How do we earn that? And that's what Theoden feels like he did. And that's both very admirable and enviable. Like, I hope I have that feeling (laughs) when I'm old. I mean, like, what better way to be on your deathbed or your death field in Theoden's case than to know that you've... Like, this is the heroicism that has been lost of the ancients, right? The, The, I mean, this is many young people growing up will watch these movies and see that death scene. And there's a heroicism to it. There's a, a dying that means something. But to to be in that position when you are dying, which will come for us all, to be able to say, I have not embarrassed the gifts that have given me. I've not wasted the talents that I have. I've run the race and not grown weary. That's profound. And w- what he's doing there, the, the profundity of it, that's his redemption. He literally says, he he's even phrases it, the grammar that's used is, I would have embarrassed them, but I haven't now. Mm-hmm. Well, even like to put a little twist on what you just said, he did grow weary, right? right? He yeah. did grow weary, yeah. and then he recovered, which is even more impressive, I think, because to never grow weary I <laughs> probably asks too much of real people, but to be able to recover from your weariness to come back, and just come back and come back and get back up every time you get a bit knocked down and to keep running. That is so much of like, I don't even such a, ad, uh, it's so strong. It might as well be adamantium well, <laughs> or vibranium. It's like that, po- that poem thing by, to do that poem by Rudyard Kipling, right? If you can bear to see the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up again with worn out tools. They were the right things to be working on. If, if that's the thing. He he built it back up. You're right. I like I love that insight. We do get weary. We we do fail. Failure is so often like Theoden failed he his kingdom. He he was useless to them. He gave up. He he sunk into this place where he couldn't be helpful anymore. And then he rose back to lead them into one of the most impa- important battles of their lives and inspire them in that position. So you're completely right. We're going to fail. We're going to get weary. We're going to hurt people. And but, he comes back but, because but of his coming friends. coming back because, of, yeah, your, his friends came around him and they said, come back, like, fight this war. <laughs> to paraphrase Gandalf, get your goddamn head out of your ass, Theoden. <laughs> Rohan <laughs> needs you right now, yeah, right? Like, your people need you. But again, like that electric shock form of putting Theoden in touch with his own reason that we talked about last time is once that happens, Theoden is no longer weary and is able to be meet his potential and earn his ancestorhood. <laughs> or, right. or basically just die knowing that you'd done good in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, like Fundamentally, that's what it is. And again, some of the greatest good he does, as well as leading Rohan, is even though there's a few scenes in Rohan where he's at odds with Eowyn, Eowyn herself being able to, like I just have a, my note of her here, she's a hero of true heart. 
you know like she when they're talking about mary coming to join the battle she says i think she says it to thaden why can't he fight for those that he loves and i thought man this is exemplifying what i would what i call a like a really vibrant equality where everyone is free and equal to defend what they love you know size gender anything else it doesn't matter everyone should be free to stick up for the things that they love and she obviously is fighting for that for herself her whole life but she's really the only person in Rohan sticking up for Mary as well Mary Adok in that way and so she demonstrates the universality of standing up against evil even at the price of social dissent yeah (laughs) from her society i guess and this is an interesting uh little thought experiment though right like what were the people of rohan and gandalf and theoden why didn't they want mary involved they knew he was gonna have trouble like he probably wasn't gonna make it out alive but that didn't matter to mary mary knew that nothing mattered if if this battle was lost that it's all gonna end and he just wanted he wanted to play be able to play even his little role and we sometimes we forget that giving people the ability to just do what they can is is so important to giving them meaning. And Eowyn understood this. She's like, Mary needs to be there. Maybe Mary isn't going to destroy a thousand orcs. Maybe, maybe he's not a game changer. But that's not what it is about. And then he ends up being a game changer. <laughs> because for Eowyn, I think it's not about tearing other people down it's about giving a downtrodden or a or a looked over person an opportunity right so she's not saying hey thaden you're evil for not letting me try this or she's not saying oh like she's making fair comparisons why do you get to fight for what you love but i don't or mary doesn't but she's not blaming other people she's just saying no give me and mary the equality to do what you're doing too because we also love this world and there's no philosophical defense to saying just because I'm smaller or I'm a woman that I don't get to try and fight for what I love too and so my note on this is man this has got to be the most like vibrant form of feminism I've ever seen not maybe ever but one of the most vibrant forms of feminism I've seen in a film where Eowyn is so sweet, so kind, so courageous. She's got all the character attributes you could ever want in a in a person worth having around. And her version of having presence in the world is not just castigating those around her, but insisting on her right to be there too. And insisting on other people's rights to be there too. And she she knows why it's important because she's a woman a lot of times we see people who have experienced being pushed out or not allowed to do their good and love people in the way they want to they when they overcome that like anyone does they end up protecting other people who are unable to have a voice so like mary has less of a voice than anyone and anyone in this in this culture doesn't have that much of a voice but she is speaking up for him because she knows what it's like to not be able to fight for what you love and to this, be told you can't do it. I think this is why I feel so inspired by her is because she 
is standing up for what's right, essentially, which is the equality of all peoples in or all sentient beings in the culture. But she's not being hateful. She's not using that any of her inability thus far to have been an equal member. She's not using any of that as an excuse to tear down all the good things that her culture does have. All she does is insist to spread those good things out to more and more people. It reminds me a little bit of how the like the ideals of the founding of the United States are amazing. The problem was they just didn't expand them out as much as they should have. They were just like <laughs> landowning white men or something. Exactly, <laughs> right? However, and quite well, I think all of the greatest activists in American history are the ones who point out that the problem isn't the American Declaration of Independence and Constitution. The problem is that it's not being adhered to well enough <laughs> to everyone. Everyone is created equal and has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The fact that that has not been done well in practice is no reason to burn it down as a principle. Well, and she has no intention of burning down Rohan as an idea or as a culture, as a principle. All she really seems to be insisting on is, no, in this culture, which is great, you should allow for someone like me or someone like Mary to fight for what we love too. Yeah. So using using the culture itself against people in it who are more petty than the principles or ideas of their society. And this is like a basic human thing. This happens all the time. Like people don't live up to their own standards for themselves. And that's why we have to stand up for ourselves, to ourselves, and for others, right? Like we have to stand up for ourselves, the people who are trying to push us down and say, you aren't worthy, you you can't do this thing that you want to do for whatever reason, because I'm better than you, because I'm you know stronger than you, because I'm smarter than you. you. You can't let people beat you down because of those things. But you can't also, you shouldn't beat yourself down. You shouldn't be like, well, I didn't have the opportunities that other people had because that just induces envy, right? If you're just beating yourself down, only ever compare yourself to who you used to be. Uh, I think that was something you said to me recently, Luke, and I think it's from Jordan Peterson or something. Mm -hmm. But And resentment is so corrupting. Oh, I mean, I have a friend who said something to me that I'll never forget, which is pick your vices well. Some of them give you nothing back. Envy <laughs> and jealousy give you nothing back. They just they hurt you more than they even hurt the object of your envy and jealousy. They sink everyone on the ship. Exactly. So in the case of Eowyn, she gets it. She's like, okay, I've not been given the opportunity to do this thing that I really want to do. I'm not going to attack everyone else. I'm just going to say, I'm going to stand up to this principle. And then if they're not going to listen, I'm going to do what I think is right anyway. Exactly. And so she shows the courage, the bravery. I mean... The truth is, if she had lived in a society that didn't have, at some very deep level, the liberal principle to allow her to fight for her country, uh, she would have been in trouble long ago and probably in jail or killed or something, yeah. right? Just because yeah. she's a nuisance in that sense. And these societies exist, right? We have to we have to remember that there's different ways to stand up. Right? There's mm -hmm. different ways to stand up without also endangering yourself to, to too much of a degree. Like you have to decide on an existential level, what do I, what am I willing to die for? But other than that, you know, protect yourself. Don't, don't just 
randomly stand up against things because you feel it's the right thing to do. Think about things. Yeah, if anyone's listening to this in North Korea, <laughs> don't just go. <laughs> yeah, don't just go say, get yourself fuck you, killed. Kim yeah, Jong Un. Figure out a different way. Yeah, there's, but, there's you know. But this a, is my point: is that Aowen is able to do the things she does because she actually recognizes she lives in a culture that isn't living up to its own standards. Yeah, and yeah. those standards actually do allow for something like and that's equality not just, just not just the beauty of the standards but the beauty of her standing up for them and i completely agree and i think i to reiterate what you said the real heroes of minorities have been the people who have stood up and said no this is this is what you've been claiming is true mm-hmm. let's live by it <laughs> she's a real american hero that i won <laughs> that i won <laughs> and then she also she kills the witch king she's the character that kills the darkest man alive who's it's been prophesied could never be killed by a man yeah well i'm no man (laughs) (laughs) i mean everyone loves that line. well it's such a good it is funny and it doesn't feel like injected in there for any agenda reason it just feels like fun like something she would say because she's developed that character and it's also pretty perfect right yeah you're right no man is gonna kill you (laughs) i'm gonna kill you yeah and so in a world where we have characters like princess leia or wonder woman or ripley or hermione like eowyn has got to be right up there in the upper echelon of greatest heroines of all time in film and something that's not really recognized i would argue she's she's often an overlooked character well there's just so many yeah (laughs) who do so many other heroic things there are a lot of characters i was not really the action hero of the film in the way that like legolas or no and and i I just felt like she was so she was treated so well in the movie by the filmmakers themselves, like Peter Jackson and the way they did it, where I just so connected to her humanity and her like she just had more virtues than like anyone. And I just was so cheering for her. So <laughs> I don't know. Like I'm just fanboying out a little bit yeah, on, yeah, you're, on you're how big, big fan she did. She did so well <laughs> because she had the right desire and orientation and knew what was ethical for her and others around her. And she gets a Mary Faramir. So, you know, happily ever after gets to happen in Tolkien's world. So I just had, a couple general heroism thoughts here. Um, one of them involving Mary and Pippin. And there's, I think it's a scene, I can't remember the exact scene, but I wrote down the note, was the importance of revelry and celebration. <laughs> and what is life for? Loving and fun. Uh, work to live, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the very beginning, I think. Aren't they They're drinking and eating at the at Isengard when right. everyone shows After up? After the ants yeah. have defeated exactly. and they've got, they've got They've got some... Uh, some of the the Shire's best weed there, and they're enjoying themselves. And the and the like the bat the whole area is still smoking from the battle, and they're already partying. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> like, well, you know, once you've won, like I don't know, I'm I'm sure many people listening to this have won a sports game or or at least been a fan of a team that won. Immediately upon victory, you want to celebrate, and like the more, the bigger the win, the greater the celebration, like. You're gonna you're gonna party a lot harder if you win the Stanley Cup than you are if you win one you know regular season hockey game. So you're saying the Flames won't be partying for a while? No, no. no, no. Hopefully, <laughs> roast it soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, it harkens back a little bit for me to something I talked about in the first 
the Fellowship of the Ring episode we did with Marion Pippin, where they sure they're maybe a little bit too goofy sometimes, but they are so in touch with such an important part of about being alive, which is the fun and the boisterous and the irreverent and the ability to just laugh off any kind of situation, regardless of how serious or not, based on the fact that, hey man, you know what? This too shall pass. This other bad thing passed, but like this South Farthing uh, weed is great and this alcohol is great and it's great to see you and let's have a good time, okay? And that is such a healthy disposition to and, have. And even at times of grief, like there's a reason there's wake, right? There's a reason that, that family gets together and is with one another during hard times because you, you need it. You got to beef there for each other. And now in victory and defeat. So while the partying is different at a funeral than it is after the Stanley cup, you need to be there for one another and like showing each other love. There's the, there's a heroism in companionship, whether it's companionship and victory or defeat, right? Fairweather friends. We've talked about this before. You don't want to be a Fairweather friend. You want to be the friend who... And here's an interesting thing about Fairweather friends, at least in my mind. Another bad thing about a Fairweather friend is if they're jealous of you and you're doing really well, they're not going to be able to celebrate with you when you're winning. You don't always win with your friends. Sometimes your winning is going at a different pace than your friend's winning. And how do you celebrate their winning? Like it... Nothing feels better than genuinely knowing that someone you care about is proud of you or happy for you in your in your victory. And and Marion Pippin, they don't really care who did better than them. No, they're they're, <laughs> right? they're not they're not trying to kill the most Urukai like Legolas and you know Gimli. They're not competing. They're like we, we survived and we and we got the ends to come and and destroy Isengard. Like let's party. Yeah, so I'm going to do just a couple rapid-fire ones here before a couple deeper ones I want to um, talk about to uh, really put a nice bow on this. So I have a note here about how Far- Faramir, there, even though he kind of gets screwed over by his dad, he does stand up to his dad in regards to Boromir, and it's because of his learning, like what he learned from Sam in the last episode we talked about. He's able to disabuse, or at least attempt to disabuse his father of some of his ideas of Boromir because Boromir actually failed before he redeemed himself again and this reminded me of the power of education because faramir was able to learn more about the world he was able to bring it back and have a like a strength to himself to stand up to an authority figure and it's because he knew more about the world he was able to learn more and i was like well that's powerful (laughs) you got to be learning more yeah and um so then there's a scene too where they remake the sort of ellen deal uh, the sword that gets shattered and then a sealer uses to cut the ring or the finger, uh, the ring on the finger off oh, of Sauron, Sauron yeah. right? And bringing the weapons of your forefathers to bear in your current struggles. And so this reminded me of, this is, to me personally, a perfect encapsulation of what I consider of the Enlightenment and of the philosophers. I don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to wisdom, philosophy, thinking, logic, there's been so many the, the the swords of my forefathers the forefathers of humanity who have worked so hard and it's not just you know scientists anyone who's struggled to really make an impact like 
that gives me re- to I so easily can remake that sort of Ellen deal in my own life where if I have a disagreement or a thought it's like you know what this I think probably that's something maybe Voltaire talked about I'm gonna go read about Voltaire and see what he thought about this particular thing because he's like so many of these crazy absurdities of human nature they just recur right every generation has these recurrences of craziness and I just don't have to start from scratch all I have to do is remake the sword of my forefathers in especially for me personally in a intellectual and cognitive way yeah like the interesting thing about I mean, to put it in another way, exactly what you're saying is Newton's quote, right? I stood on the shoulders of giants. Yes. Like, or, or like I'm at the sea of knowledge or Socrates saying, you know, I don't know anything. Like the beginning of wisdom is knowing you don't know anything. Part of the beginning of education, going back to what you're saying about education is realizing that there's something you need to learn and to, to reforge that sword of your ancestors to to learn from the past, to learn from history, like we've seen characters do throughout this saga as well, in particular the case of Faramir with Boromir, like we talked about last episode, to do that, you have to be focused on the understanding that you don't know everything. There's a humility, right? Of, I don't know the answer. But you're not alone. Yeah, but you're not alone. You don't just have to stand out there in the wasteland ignorant you can stand out there ignorant but with allies and sometimes the allies are physical people beside you and sometimes the ally can be the weapon of well for aragorn it's the sword for someone like you and me it could be kant or Or kierkegaard or or thomas Paine, or it could be it could be famine like his humor towards life his curiosity right Hitchens. Yeah. For me, Hitchens is another big one. I, I find uh, a guy named David Brooks who wrote a book called The Road to Character, but he's written a lot of great books, or Peter Berger who wrote um, In Praise of Doubt. Like, and then going back further, Dostoevsky, Les Mis. The, 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 the list could be very, yeah. very, very, We could very, talk about this forever. Thomas Jefferson. Uh, yeah. Churchill. Spinoza. Like, yeah, like the, the list goes on. But we, the, We're not alone, which is empowering to admit you don't know and to keep trying yeah exactly so i guess my my final thought on on that particular note would be is you don't have to be alone because you know if you don't pursue these things if you don't talk to people or read and think and get out of your own fucking head you're gonna be alone in your head if you don't fill it with other people's thoughts as well and that can be done as luke was saying through various different means but one of the best ways and one of the ways that's never going to leave you. You'll have it as long as you can see. And even if you can't see, if you can hear, if you can't hear, you can touch. You can read and think other people's thoughts. Yeah, I like that. And to paraphrase uh, the great philosopher Fox Mulder, the ideas are out there. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. So this... I want to segue the next thought into our final topic, which probably won't surprise you, but it will be Aragorn. (laughs) The book is called Return of the King. (laughs) Yeah, I can't remember if he says it or if... I think Gandalf says this line, but he kind of is excoriating some people in Gondor, and he says, you are soldiers of Gondor. Thus, 
insinuating like a, a fortitude that they should have that they're not having or like a strength based on this wonderful idea that is Gondor that they are not living up to right and so I didn't think about living up to or not living up to but it made me think okay like a distinction I sometimes think about between the, the difference between patriotism and nationalism patriotism to me being a super positive thing versus nationalism being not what I want as a humanist, right? So as you probably have gathered from this point, we live in Canada and I love Canada. I have a ton of pride for this country. I really think that this country is one, certainly one of the best in the world, but I don't think it's the best in like a rah, 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 fuck you all sense. We're good, you're bad, suck on that. I love Canada as an idea. Canada as a country is an idea. It's an idea where you can come here from anywhere in the world, and if you're willing to buy into some very basic values, such as equality for all people, valuing people regardless of any immutable uh, thing about them, freedom of religion, freedom of non-religion, um, democracy, uh, separation of church and state, handful of others that are very basic if you rule can rule of law rule of law if you can sign off on that uh like in a in a very more broad sense like a commitment to science and philosophy as the best forms of error correction and discovery of the world you can sign off on that shit anyone can come here and be because that it's being canadian isn't wearing a red flat red and white flag and saying oh i was born in winnipeg so i'm the most canadian it gets being canadian is realizing that this is a country that is potentially on the forefront of universalizing humanity like making this for everyone this experiment and and the only other country that i really see even being remotely like this is the usa and they're doing it differently arguably going but you can become american Right. Like you can if you pass whatever and same with Canada, right? You can become Canadian if you study up a bit, take whatever test I can. The citizenship long enough. Yeah. Yeah. But you get your citizenship. You're Canadian, regardless of your skin color. Anyone who thinks different is troglodyte. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Whereas I've been to countries in the world, like, for example, like doesn't matter at least no time in the near future (laughs) would I ever become Korean. Like they wouldn't if, say you're a Korean. Yeah. yeah, and like again, I could get, I could become a Korean citizen if I really wanted to, but I'm not Korean. Right. It's a deeper thing than it's like it is very, uh, it's an ethnicity and it's a culture and it's just so deep. And like, same with uh, one of the biggest problems with a country like France is that to be French is to be something like to be born there, right? To like actually be French, you can't just become French. Whereas Canada. You come here and you sign off on those things I talked about earlier. You're as Canadian as anyone born here. And I love that idea. Because that's a patriotism. That's being in love with the ideas underpinning your society and not just saying, oh, I was born here, so it's great. Fuck you. It's a, a co- I love this idea. It's a commitment to an idea. And the idea is very simple, which is that we can live together. To me, Canada is... Not a country as much as Canada is an idea. And that's an idea that needs to be spread 
The world needs more Canada. <laughs> totally. But the thing is, if the world got more Canada, eventually it would just be the world. Like the word Canada would just, in a sense, cease to exist as it does, like as a nation state. But that's the interesting thing about nation states or cultures or empires or any of these things. They rise and fall, but the ideas are what stay. So the rule of law, which was kind of birthed in Athens and, you know, made better in Rome and, and throughout the ages has come to be, mean what it means uh, in the Western world. The idea that you have a right to not have the state completely destroy you. You have a right to be defended. These these things are it's so important. It's hard to oversell and, how great democracy has been. Yeah, well, <laughs> democracy, rule of law, like, there's so many things. These things are they're important ideas. There are people who don't want those ideas, too. There are people who say, "No, I don't I don't want rule of law." But you cannot have the diversity of the idea of Canada without also the acceptance of these ideas. Yeah. Because those ideas are what make us able to live together. They are the ideas that have been distilled from the Enlightenment that have basically said all men are created equal. That that was that's a that's a true phrase. All men and women are created equal, but everywhere they're in chains. We're born free, but everywhere we're in chains. Why? Because did you just quote Marx? I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? It's a good quote. I won't tell if you won't. <laughs> it's a good quote, and here's why it's a good quote because. We're, we're, we're enslaved by the narcissism of petty difference. And, and you said something to this to me in our own personal conversations about the idea that maybe we need to have a generalized... Uh, you, you're going to be able to say it better than I can. Yeah, I think it's Freud who said people suffer from the narcissism of the small difference. And I would like to change that around to the curiosity of the massive similarity or right, something like, like that the craziness of how there's so much that's the same about us or the the excitement the excitement about it the yeah. excitement of the massive similarity and looking for those things being like well, how do we how are we the same not not trying to define ourselves by how we're different yeah and i feel like at its best and at the standards that we can try and hold it to that's what canada is yeah, I mean, and obviously we have a long way to go, and we're imperfect, just like... Yeah, I mean, there's there's no... The history is pretty gruesome for lots of different groups, and it's unbelievably terrible. But there aren't many countries in the world that actually have the philosophical underpinnings to be able to deal with their own problems in a way that Canada does. And that is something. That is actually something that is almost non-existent now or ever in history to have a society that allows citizens of its own country to go after the country publicly because of how how much it realizes that freedom of speech and freedom of expression is more crucial to living a good life than clamping down on its past sins yeah no. So what are you standing for exactly? Yeah. And, and so then... Um, who's the personification? Of the, Soldiers of Gondor? Of Soldiers of Gondor. Why, I would argue it's the King of Gondor. Oh. <laughs> Is that what the movie's about? <laughs> you know, the more I watch these things or read about them, maybe you, maybe this is just our interpretation, but like Aragorn is not a... He's a central character. But he's not the most important character. He's uh, he's just rock solid. Yeah, like he's 
basically unwavering throughout the entire trilogy. He he's a great contrast to Boromir in Fellowship of the Ring, where he lets Frodo go and doesn't try to take the ring from him. Uh, he's great in helping Rohan and in helping the Hobbits, Merry and Pippin. He's a great third wheel to <laughs> Gimli and Legolas. <laughs> you know, I guarantee you, there's some pretty intense gay pornos out there with the three of them. Yay. You know it's true. <laughs> well, I. <laughs> <laughs> I assume with everything that I know that it's probably true, but Aragorn. Oh God! <laughs> but he, he's definitely I, like, and this is no knock against him because I think he's great, but he's not the most interesting character in this no, story. No, no, I that that's what I was thinking. I was trying to say is he is definitely not the most interesting character. But like, as a little boy, he was the character I wanted to be, and I think that says something, right? If now. If I think of myself and I think of my relationships, like there's some relationships where I'm the Frodo and other people are the Sam, some where I'm the Sam and other people are the Frodo, or I can also think of the Gollum in me. I can think of, you know, what Theoden's reaction to bitterness and pain is or what Denethor's is. But when you think about Aragorn, he's kind of like that, that ancient idea of the, of the saint or, or the, the god. He's the thing you aim to be. I think when I was a kid, that's why I loved him so much. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be a hero. And in in the imperfection of Frodo, we see the perfection of Aragorn. He never wavers. He never stops his quest. He charges into the face of death multiple times. He goes and resuscitates the army of death. <laughs> of death to defeat the orcs. Yeah, and like with no guarantee that they're going to honor their pact. Yeah, he, ta- he takes a huge risk purely on the idea that this is the only way at this point. I got to walk the hardest path, the path of death. And he does it, like you said, with a steadiness and a conviction. He's your, he's your I think, why the book is named Return of the King, because Aragorn is the hero of Tolkien's book. Maybe that's what Tolkien thought. I don't know, but what, he did name it that. But if you look at, like, if you're going for archetype hero, you're going for, like, an Iron Man-level hero in the in the Marvel Universe, it's Aragorn. Yep, it definitely is. I wish I... Well, I don't know. I guess, like, the, just the fact is I don't have a ton of thoughts or insights about him. And maybe that's just because he's just doing what... he He's, like, the structure of the story. He's the never-tiring but always tired yeah he always leader. seems so tired <laughs> but he never stops i guess like the best hero moment is when he rushes at all the orcs at the black gate by himself who knows <laughs> right? if the army's gonna follow him yeah and they, well and then hilariously the next two are Marion pippin to run out <laughs> you know but he is he is something he's almost like i can't even put my finger on what he's doing in this movie but he's doing something so good for all of us. I think uh, the thought that I had was about mentorship. So we don't really know Aragorn's story, how he got to where he is. He's obviously very close with Elrond. He's very close with Gandalf. He's been with these characters. We're really in the in the Hobbit's world. But there's a whole story that happened a long time before this. These characters know one another. Um, not not necessarily Legolas and Gimli, but but if you go Elrond, Gandalf, Aragorn, they know one another, 
And I think about this when it comes to just your life and, and the stories of the people that are older than you or, or the mentors you have or your parents or, or grandparents. They have relationships and realities that you're not going to be able to understand. Maybe, maybe you're not going to understand them as characters because you don't know the details the way you know yours or your friends. But like they got wisdom and they got strength, at least for me the way that I pick mentors and people that I share my life with and, and try to get wisdom from, I kind of want them to be almost untouchable heroes in my mind. Like I don't really want them to just be people that are slightly smarter than me. Right. You kind of, there's, there's a hero worship that's necessary for improvement too. Like I remember reading about this uh, basketball player who just loved Michael Jackson or not Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan. And, <laughs> Michael Jordan and would watch him all the time and like started to get good. But then one of the things that's, that stops him from getting better is he couldn't be Michael Jordan. He had to be his own player, but he never stopped understanding the greatness of, of Michael Jordan. And I'm reminded of that song by Pink Floyd. Did you trade all your heroes for ghosts? A walk on part in the war for a lead role in a cage. And if we if we can't have heroes and we just have these ghosts, then we're not living up to our potential because we don't have something to aim at. Yeah, well said. I like all of that a lot. I think that that's true. You need something. You need a you need a shining star to look at and to move towards. My only qualification would be I don't think. Well, I don't want to quibble about semantics. I know if hero worship. Well, yeah. quite yeah. connotes because that can also take a really negative turn where and, you and sure at some point i'll talk about the negative nature of celebrity and how yeah. i feel about that. you devote too much time and put too much stock and importance on a particular person it can be a little cultish sometimes if it gets a big enough group so yeah i totally agree i think yeah you need the north star you need that like strong something thing to, to admire follow. yeah in in life right yeah and, and aragorn is so admirable yeah, exactly. In in all of his dealings with everyone. And maybe then a nice little end to this can be my very last note that I made for this where right, well, <laughs> I'd say near the end of Return of the King, but no one really knows when that is. <laughs> um, a scene towards the back, ha- the back half of the end <laughs> of Return of the King is it's at Aragorn's coronation or maybe his wedding. I can't remember. But they're all out, like on that the outcrop, the outcrop right. of Minas Tirith, that's way up above at the top of the city. And he bows to the hobbits, and then because he's the king, like Mary Pippin, Sam, and Frodo are there, and he bows to them, and then everyone in Gondor bows to the hobbits. So these four hobbits are the only four creatures standing. Everyone else is bowing to them. Even the least among us has greatness in them, if we would but give it a chance. And I think we need to, f- to find that greatness. A lot of us think we're the least. And we need to look into that ourselves and say, where is that greatness? Well, if a hobbit can do it, anyone can. Right? Exactly. And There's Ara- more strength in hobbits and, than people know. And Gandalf and Aragorn looked for that greatness. Legolas and Gimli too, but especially Gandalf and Aragorn throughout the entire trilogy 
saw that greatness in the hobbits and encouraged it and found it and because of that the hobbits were able to rise to the occasion notwithstanding what i said about frodo a little earlier yeah notwithstanding that he, that frodo failed but yeah they did rise to the occasion all four in their own way and the ring never would have been destroyed and without them bowing to them represents that and so my th- takeaway from that is okay especially again i said earlier i work with kids like there's no person so small that you can't at least try to find the greatness in them and encourage that out so that they can rise to their own occasions and that's what aragorn is um demonstrating that he appreciates bowing yeah Yeah, that's a great a great conclusion to our our six hour now i believe uh return of the return of the king (laughs) return of the return of the king yeah this has uh been awesome thanks for listening this is <laughs> really true fiction. I'm Luke Mason. Really, really true. And I'm <laughs> David Parker. Don't worry, there's lots more to come, but this has been a lot of fun. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye.